We're continuing this morning to look at Paul's letter to the Ephesians that we began last week, looking at the first six verses of Ephesians. Today we're going on to the next eight, so verses 7 through 14. But before we jump into the text, I want to ask a question that has been asked throughout the history of the world, and that is, what's wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? That there have been many answers given throughout the history of the world. That perhaps what's wrong with the world is poorly educated people. If people only knew better, the world wouldn't be so broken. Or maybe the problem with the world is unevenly distributed resources, that if we only had the means to get stuff to places where they don't have the stuff they need, everyone would have enough and there'd be no hunger, poverty, or fighting then if we could just evenly distribute the resources of the world. Maybe the solution was that what's wrong with the world is power-hungry dictators, and we just need to get rid of power-hungry dictators, and then the world will be fine. Or maybe the problem with the world is this form of government or that form of government. And many people have tried to answer this question in history, and a lot of them have been very confident, assured of themselves that they know the answer. Well, the Bible gives us an answer, and it's a little different from the answers that many people have given that when it tries to answer the question, what is wrong with the world, the answer it gives is we are. We are what's wrong with the world. That the sinfulness of humanity is the greatest problem in the world, the most fundamental problem in the world. And in our sermon passage today, we are shown God's plan to fix what is broken about the world, and He does so by saving broken, sinful people who are part of the world. And God assures us, as crazy as this idea sounds, it is His plan, and it is going to work. It is His plan, And it is going to work. So, we're going to look this morning at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 14. I'm going to start by reading verse 3. And the reason I'm starting in verse 3, even though we talked about verses 3 through 6 last week, is verses 3 through 14 are one sentence in Greek. That apparently, even though the Bible is inspired, it may not have gone through grammar check uh, with the Apostle Paul. He liked to just run sentences on. Uh, But hey, it's inspired. God chose to do it that way. But verses 3 through 14 are really one big, long sentence. So I'm going to read that, though our focus will be in verses 7 through 14. So Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. 
making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks for the Apostle Paul and for the Holy Spirit inspiring him to recount for us these blessings with which we have received in Jesus Christ, blessed in him. We pray, O oh God, that you would speak to us through your word today that you would use me in spite of my sin, in spite of my own weakness and failings to proclaim your word and that you would give us open hearts and minds to receive it as your word and that your word would be powerful in the spirit to change us and to make us more and more your children and to assure us of our salvation. Amen. Well, this morning, we are thinking a lot about assurance assurance and being assured that we are fixed and that the world will be fixed as well. And so today we see that God reveals his plan to fix us in Christ, and then he lets us in on his little mystery that that fixing us in Christ is actually how he's going to fix the world. And whether or not we believe it, he is assuring us that yes, this is my plan, yes, it will work, yes, my children are saved. But when we think about getting fixed and are we broken and all of this, we can think a lot about self-help concerns. That if you've ever been to a bookstore or to Amazon, you can see that there are just innumerable self-help books. We love self-help books. And so when we ask, what do we need to do to fix ourselves, we have all kinds of answers. We need to eat healthier and exercise more. We need to learn to be content with what we have or to splurge on what we want and fulfill our desires to treat yourself. We need to follow our heart. Do what makes you happy. Find people who make you happy. Or we need to make up for past mistakes. We need to leave a legacy of success. We need to help others. Whatever it may be, we have all kinds of ideas for how to fix ourselves. And yet God, here in verse 7, tells us what we need to be fixed. It is redemption. Redemption is what we need to fix us. So what is redemption? Well, in the ancient world, redemption meant to be freed from bondage or slavery. But since we are not in physical bondage or slavery, it must be a spiritual bondage. It means to be freed from the guilt, the power, and the penalty of sin. That's why Paul describes redemption as the forgiveness of our trespasses. 
Now, trespasses is another one of those words that may give us pause. We're like, hey, that's the word the other people say in the Lord's Prayer, right? And that's how we tend to think of it. And yet, trespass implies that we have wronged someone by crossing a line. The no trespassing signs in front of someone's house. And so our sins are wronging God, crossing his line that he set up with his commands. And so in trespassing God's commands, we have become broken. Our sin is our problem. Our trespassing of God's commands is what leads us to live selfishly and to sin against other people. And yet we are told good news here. There is this fix for our sin. It is to be redeemed through Jesus' blood, that we are saved by the riches of God's grace. It is nothing in us. It is not how sorry we are. It is not how much good we have done to make up for the bad. There is no idea in Scripture of redeeming yourself. I hear that term all the time, redeeming yourself. I hear it a lot from sportscasters that a baseball player has struck out three times and now they're up in the bottom of the ninth with a chance to win the game and they're 0 for 3 with three strikeouts and the announcer says, well, he has a chance to redeem himself here after a terrible game. He's trying to make up for the wrong he has done. We can't do that. We can't fix ourselves. There is no self-help. And so God redeems us. He saves us by his grace, not by what we do. And that is from Jesus Christ as we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. This is the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ saves sinners through the cross. It is God's lavish riches of grace. And yet God goes further here through the Apostle Paul. He goes beyond personal salvation. He is saying the cross is not just about saving individuals. That is a huge part of the cross. But according to God's wisdom and insight, through the cross, he makes known the mystery of his will. He makes known to us a mystery Now, revealing a mystery, we can often think of in terms of like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, when she finally makes it to Oz and she pulls back the curtain and finds out who Oz really is. But she reveals that mystery. He doesn't want it to be revealed. But here in Scripture, God is the one making known the mystery as he did to Daniel So he could talk to Nebuchadnezzar that our God is a revealing God. A God who makes mysteries known to people if he so chooses. And so God chooses what mysteries to reveal and which mysteries not to reveal. So last week we talked about God's election or predestination. And there are some mysteries with that that God has chosen not to reveal. Why he chooses some and not others. But there are other mysteries that God is pleased to reveal to us. That he has made known his plan to save the world through Jesus Christ. That God's solution to the world's brokenness is Jesus. It says in verse 10 that he will unite all things or bring together all things. That heaven and earth have split apart because of sin. 
We see that at the very beginning of the Bible where Adam and Eve sin and they are given the boot, the eviction notice out of the Garden of Eden and now people no longer walk and talk and have open relationship with God. God now was with his people in a mysterious, in a hidden way. In the tabernacle or the temple, he was hidden behind great curtains so that he was not around his people, protecting them from his holiness, that heaven and earth were no longer united. They were separated, and they needed to be brought together. And so in the fullness of time, God brought them together in Jesus Christ, that God became flesh and walked among us, that Jesus came to earth and he lived, he died, he rose again, and it is in Jesus that he reunites heaven and earth. And so in the lives of each and every believer, we see a glimpse of this reuniting. The way that God plans to fix the deepest problems of the world is not by raising up world leaders to be movers and shakers. It is not through governmental programs to uphold good laws. It is not through better schools to educate the masses. It is not through the redistribution of wealth to give it to the poor. It is not through granting each person's most desired wish as if, they were, as if he was a genie. God's plan to fix the world is by saving people in Jesus Christ. That is the problem at its root, that God fixes the problem at its root. As horrendous as root canals are, they are effective because they deal with the problem literally at the root. And so God sees the brokenness of humanity and deals with our problem at the root by redeeming us, saving us from our sins, and as we are saved, we begin to live in a new and different way as God's holy and blameless children. Yes, we will continue to sin, but hopefully we start to see sin as the problem and not the solution. That sin is what breaks the world and our relationships with others. That it never fulfills our desires. And so in this way, God reveals his world-saving power in his people, allowing us to live transformed lives. And he begins reuniting heaven and earth in each and every one of us. But we don't always feel that way. That being saved and feeling saved can feel like two very different things. Because we all still struggle with sin. We all live in a broken world. I mean, we only had like 47 prayer requests today talking about the brokenness of the world. And that's just what was mentioned. There is surely far more we could lift up about the brokenness of this world. And so even if we believe in Jesus and that we are redeemed by Jesus, we may wonder, am I really fixed? And is Jesus really the best way to fix the world, God? It's been 2,000 years, and life's, I mean, it's still pretty not great for a lot of people. And we can wonder, God, I know this is your plan. You've revealed it, but I have some suggestions. 
And Paul knows this. He knows that we might not be sure of God's plan. And so in verses 11 through 14, he talks to us about assurance. He wants us to be assured that we are truly fixed, that we are truly saved in Christ, and that that will save the world. He begins writing, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined. That our inheritance to eternal life was not some chance event. It was not something that we did. It was the plan of God. The God of all the universe who works all things according to his wise counsel, he is going to ensure that that inheritance is ours. Salvation is planned by God when he chooses who to adopt. Salvation is accomplished by God through Jesus Christ. And salvation is guaranteed by God through the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says when he says that all who believe in Jesus were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The Holy Spirit is like a down payment or a foretaste or an appetizer of what is to come. That he is the sure sign that we have been saved and that we have eternal life. And that's where, as we discussed in Sunday school, God, it would be really nice if the sure sign and guarantee that you gave us was visible. Because the inheritance we have is invisible. And so to give us an invisible guarantee to help us, that's, that's, that's kind of rough right there. Wouldn't it be better to give us a visible guarantee? When I buy like sports jerseys or hats or clothing, they have that shiny sticker with the logo of the whatever, the NFL or the NBA or whatever. It's that authentic merchandise. And that's what the Spirit is for us, except we don't see that shininess of the Spirit in our faces. We don't have some Spirit barcode on our wrist that we can go, oh yeah, there's the guarantee that I am sealed in the Spirit. Wouldn't it have been nice to give us a visible guarantee, God? But the invisible Spirit shows himself in visible ways. Paul writes in another letter in Galatians that the Spirit shows its fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And as we see this fruit sprout in our lives, we know that that cannot come from the rotten root of our sinful hearts. It has to come from the godly indwelling of the Holy Spirit sprouting His fruit in us. That is the sure sign that the Spirit is with us. Some of us may have a blossoming tree full of fruit, and others of us it's like, yeah, I think that's one. Just the little buds of fruit starting. And yet it's fruit nonetheless. Not only that, the Spirit convinces us of the Word of God. He points us to God's promises and says, these are true. You can think of the Trinity in this way. That the Father is the one who adopts us as His children. Jesus is the one who makes us children of God. And the Holy Spirit is the one who makes us feel like children of God. Paul writes in two different beautiful passages that the Spirit helps us to testify and call God Abba, Father. Abba means dad or daddy or papa, an intimate expression of knowing this is my dad, my father, 
whom I love and who loves me. Paul writes that the Spirit is with us now, assuring us of our salvation. He is the guarantee of our salvation. Okay. And this is where we start to remember that, well, anytime the Bible reminds us of something and is so insistent on something, it must be because we are really bad at remembering or that we are prone to forget this truth. If Paul is so insistent on assuring us of our salvation, then we must be really bad about being sure of our salvation. After all, we only remind ourselves and others of things that we forget. We remind young children, you need to eat your vegetables. We never say, eat your chocolate, please. Thank you. Move along. We remind teenagers to do their homework. We never remind them to mouth off at us or just be quiet and sulky. We never have to remind them to do that. Husbands are often reminded to do honeydew lists. They are never reminded, hey, could you just finish watching the game till the end of the fourth quarter? Thank you. We don't have to be reminded of that. Elderly people need to be reminded of their medications and to take them, not to be cantankerous, okay? We need to be reminded of that which we forget. And so Paul is assuring us, which should tell us that we aren't good at being assured. We need to be reminded of our assurance because we look to other places for assurance. Our assurance is a heavenly inheritance. And that bothers us because we can't see it. We understand retirement funds and savings accounts. We understand those things that can make us feel secure that we have an inheritance, perhaps something to pass down to our children, something that will ensure that we don't have to be working when we're 85 years old in order to make a wage. And yet Paul here is saying, you have a heavenly inheritance. It was predestined and given to you by God. No downturn in the market, no loss of job is going to get rid of that inheritance. It is yours, it is secure, and I have guaranteed and sealed it on you through the Spirit. You have an inheritance, be sure of it, Christians. But this inheritance is not yet our possession. And we are very, we are very possessing creatures. And so if it's not in our possession, that means our hands are empty because it is awaiting our possession. And we are really bad with empty hands in the way that some people are really bad with money in their pockets. They just got to spend it. I was like, I was like that, was, may still be like that. But our hands are discontent if they are not possessing things, whether it's a home, land, cars, clothing, gadgets, whatever it is, these possessions make us feel like we have something, that we are sure we are valuable. We are sure that we have enough for the coming years. He is saying, you have a possession. It's waiting for you. Don't worry about collecting all of these things. It is yours. Yes, you must wait to take full possession of it, but I'm guaranteeing it. Trust me, Christians, you have in your possession eternal life. And so we can be assured of God's promises because he is worth trusting. Paul writes in verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The gospel is the good news of our salvation. 
planned by the Father, accomplished by the Son, guaranteed by the Spirit. It is in that truth that our assurance rests. It is not how well we have obeyed. It is not how we're feeling at the moment. It is what God has done for us that should make us feel sure that we are saved. Paul cares about this. Paul wants us to feel assured because when we do, we start to live as truly fixed people. The deepest problem in our lives has been fixed, that we are reconciled to God, that heaven and earth have been united in Christ. And instead of living for ourselves, we can live for something else. And Paul tells us twice at the end of verses 12 and 14 what that something else is, that it is to the praise of his glory. Think about it this way. Imagine there's a child adopted into a family, and this child is unsure if they belong in this family. And they are constantly wondering, have I done enough to be in this family? Am I living enough like this family? Do I like what they like? Do I do what they do? Have I obeyed them well enough? What if they send me away? Will they really love me? And the anxiety and fears of their hearts constantly lead them to live for one and only thing, their own belonging. Everything is inwardly focused as they are concerned, do I fit here? Compare that to a child who is adopted and knows they are loved and knows they belong and knows that last name has been put on them and it will not be changed who knows that they are in the family no matter what they do. That it is not based on how well they fit into the family. It is based on their parents' desire to bring them into this family out of their love. If that's the case, that child doesn't have to focus on itself anymore. It can focus on others. And Paul says that we are to live as children who are sure of our standing before God for what he has done so that we can live to the praise of God's glory. See, when we are assured of our salvation, it shouldn't lead us to going, oh, well, that's set. I guess I can do whatever the heck I want right now, and I'm sure of being saved. No! Paul addresses that elsewhere in his letters, and he says that is a dangerous attitude. Rather, when we are assured of our salvation, we then want to live for the God who has done so much for us, who has redeemed us in Christ, and so we obey his commands, we trust his promises, and we hope for that eternal life that he has given to us. And when we live to the praise of God's glory, then we are living as fixed people, living as people united between heaven and earth, living as children of the kingdom of God, children who know the mystery of what God wants to do to fix the world. He is transforming us to be his children. But again, that is not an isolated thing. We gather here as fixed holy children to be the church, to give the world a glimpse of the way that God plans to unite all things, that in spite of our differences, in spite of our disagreements, that there is a way for all people in this world, no matter how much they may want to hate each other, to be united in Jesus Christ, to fix the deepest brokenness between us. That is who the church is to be. 
people redeemed in Christ, living as changed people. Paul tells us about that in verse 12. He is saying, we who were the first to hope. God doesn't redeem us all at once. It takes time. And so there is a great privilege and great responsibility to live as some of the first fixed people. That we are to live and to demonstrate what it means to be changed by God. And we are to tell the good news of salvation, the hope for this hurting world, the wonderful mystery of the gospel, God's plan to fix the world. Christians, we are called to know that we are God's children. We are called to live together as God's children, and we are called to announce that God in his adopting grace is ready to welcome in more and more children to his family. May we let them know, and may we live in such a way that they desire to be part of this family. Amen. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank you that you do not leave us wondering whether or not we have done enough that we do not live each day wondering if we have obeyed you enough or sinned too much, that we have been cast out and we are doomed to hell. We thank you that we can truly have assurance of our salvation in Jesus Christ. And I pray, O God, for your children here that you would assure them by the Holy Spirit, that you would help them to know that guarantee, to know that they are yours. And I pray for any who do not know you, that you would help them to hear of the lavish riches of your grace in Christ and for the hope and healing power that Jesus offers and that they too would be adopted into your family and would share in our inheritance of eternal life to the praise of your glory. Amen.